0: You're listening to a sermon from Bentree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit bentreechurch.com. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Bentree Church. Blessings and a great big Merry Christmas to you. Ho, ho, ho. It's great to be back with you after being out a couple of weeks and uh, with sickness. Thank you for your prayers and your kind words of encouragement, and, uh, but you were really in good hands with Pastor Jeff. It's good to be back with you, but hey, uh, not everyone has a pastor that looks like Santa in the Christmas season, so uh, you guys are particularly blessed here, uh, and seriously, it's good to be back with you. Uh, I mean, the people right here. Uh, I get choked up when I see your faces when I've been gone for a long time. Uh, it's good to be with you. I look forward to each time, uh, each week I'm away. It never feels right when I'm gone. Uh, we were uh, sick. Six, so uh, it's good to be back here. Well, let's get our Bibles out and get ready to dive into God's Word. You can turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Let's go deep to... Yeah, thank you. But first, would you bow your head and let's go to God in prayer and just ask for his blessing over this time, uh, preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, especially in this time of the Christmas season of Advent. God, there's so many things going on and business but we just want to calm our hearts would you calm our hearts holy spirit would you come into this place and open these words and god wherever we're at help the week that's coming to disappear and the week that's uh just completed the worries to disappear and help uh just your words remain true god help me to disappear behind this text today We want to be changed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand with me in reverence to the Word of God being read aloud uh, in our midst. This is John chapter 6, starting in verse 10 through 15. Jesus said, have the people sit down. And I just had you sit up, stand up. Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountains by himself. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I had a hound dog growing up whose name was Tumnus, not the smartest dog in the world. May have been the dumbest. Uh, I love Tumnus, long legs, blue tick hound, if you know what that is. He had a particular gift for being able to get out of any yard, any fence we ever put him in. We even had an eight foot high chain link fence and he could quite literally climb that fence, like put his paws in and climb over the fence, even a wooden fence. We could not keep him in. Because his favorite thing in life was to chase cars down our country road that went by our house. And I would run after him and I would get him back and I would say, Tumnus, Tumnus, why do you want to get out of the yard so bad? You got everything you had need. You got food. You got water here. And I would say, Buddy, why do you want to catch a car? And he was blah, blah, blah. and why do you want to chase him so bad? What's so so into the cars? But If he ever caught a car, he wouldn't have known what to do with it. Like if it stopped and he bit it, he didn't know what he would do with it. Like if he succeeded at catching that car, even though it was his absolute life's desire, I don't think it would have been termed successful. Now, as we follow Christ Jesus... As our Lord and Savior, we want to be successful in that, to try to have a life of being successful in Christ. Here are two dangers I want you to write down. We're going to start with. There are two dangers in following Jesus. One is the danger of success in ministry. Success in ministry. That's danger number one. Like what if we're successful? There's a danger in that. Like my dog Tumnus. What if you catch that car? What are you going to do with it? We'll talk more about this for sure. But like that dog that chases and catches the car, what happens if you're successful? Look, this is the second danger to the danger in hostility. The danger in hostility. That's the second danger. Now we'll get to... The, uh, this in just a minute, but we saw this second one. We'll get to the first one in just a minute. We saw this second danger back in John 5. We saw the danger of hostility towards Jesus. He heals a man who had been lame, unable to walk for 38 years, and he gets in trouble for it. And the Jewish religious leaders are hostile to Jesus because not only had he healed the man, he had done it on a Sabbath and then had stood up against these false rules these religious dudes had put into place. Those religious leaders were actively trying to have Jesus killed because of that. Now, when we are saved by Jesus, brought to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are born again. We are made new. Born from above. Now as we begin to follow Jesus up this bent tree discipleship pathway. We've talked about those mountains. And we try to live like Jesus. There's a certain amount of hostility that we can expect from the world where we live. But sometimes hostility, it comes from nowhere. Even from family. There's a podcast I listen to. Uh, during the weekdays and I, I highly recommend it in fact write it down It's it's a news podcast from a christian perspective called the world and everything in it You can find it wherever you get podcast in it's just a news show but a christian news show a couple of weeks ago The folks at the world and everything in it They had this story about this small group of people that had this vision of walking across the united states carrying a cross Their goal is to simply present the gospel to people. They go, hey, why are you carrying that cross? And as they walk, and as they've had hundreds and hundreds of what they call gospel appointments or gospel conversations leading people to Christ Jesus. Now, cool story, right? that 's hard work, and they have this little support vehicle that just kind of travels behind them, follows them, gives them water, makes sure they have everything. But the story that the world share uh, the world and everything in it shared is they were walking across Montana. This guy approaches them and angrily starts yelling at them things like, Get out of my state. You're not wanted here. We hate Christians. Get away from here. And he began to beat them physically, beat them up. Now, thankfully, the police were called, but instead of arresting the aggressor, the police arrested this team for sharing Christ. Now, the story will get out eventually, and hopefully they will get justice in that county in Montana. They were in jail for, I believe, 10 days for sharing the gospel without a permit. Folks, that kind of hatred in the United States uh, towards believers is rare, but not unheard of. But let me just tell you that in other parts of the world, that's regular practice, There's a hatred for believers who actively share the gospel. There's a danger there. Did you realize that 125,000 to 150,000 people a year are killed for their faith in Christ Jesus? Mainly in China, in Africa, some in South America. Sometimes even other so-called Christians can give serious grief For standing up for Jesus. Oh the people of the world will say. Oh we love Jesus. We love Jesus. We think he's a great teacher. We think he's a wonderful moral example. But when you actually point to the words of Jesus. And say this is what Jesus actually said. Oh they don't like that at all. Now we need to realize the danger of hostility. Is a supernatural thing towards Christians. You see, before we are saved, we have this one problem, everyone has. We all share this one problem, that we are sinful, that we're at war with God. So when a person who is not saved hears that message that we are sinful, it's an offensive thing. Now let's be real clear, there are two teams only, God's team, Satan's team. Those that have been given faith to believe and trusted Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And God as their Father. And those that have not been saved and are still lost in their sins, separated from God. They are enemies of God. Now the gospel message, although awesome for those that believe, it's very offensive for those that don't believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now many Christians... As they begin their journey of discipleship, of that discipleship pathway, when they meet this hostility, either small or great from the world, they begin to pull back from their commitment to Jesus. They don't wanna share the gospel story anymore with those around them because they don't wanna face that hostility. I've been there, I'm sure you have too. I know this is the case in my life, I've seen it. At times in my life, I've just avoided sharing the gospel with those in my life because I was worried what they would think about me. Has that been you? Maybe maybe you've had that happen this week or recently. But the danger of hostility towards the message of Jesus did not stop Jesus. Every time he meets hostility to the message he proclaims, he doubles down. It gets clearer about it. And Jesus is our pattern. Now later on in John 15, Jesus warns his disciples uh, this in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus reminds us that the real danger, if we truly carry the message of Jesus and we follow Jesus, like he said, there will be people that are hostile towards us. Yet we still love them, don't we? We still share the gospel with them, even though they're hostile. By the way, something that we see in this chapter is that the people will love Jesus until Jesus doesn't do what they want him to do and then they turn violent. And that love quickly turns to hate. We see that in the world. We see it with Jesus' life. Well, that brings us back to the first danger, and that's the danger of what if you're successful in ministry? What does that look like? Like my dog that chased cars, what if you actually catch that car? What are you going to do with it? On the surface, this doesn't sound much like a danger, does it? I know it sounds kind of funny, but success in following Jesus is almost... More scary than failure or hostility in following Jesus. Now the reason I say that is because when we are successful, we can begin to think of our success as something that we that depends on our worth. Or our worth depends on that success. Like somehow we begin to think that success in ministry depends on us and our ability instead of God. Pastors and church leaders are particularly susceptible to this way of thinking. I know I have wrestled with this many times. If the numbers are great, if people are attending church, they're up, then my self-worth just go, man, I must be pretty good. If I'm not careful, I can begin to think, hey, I'm a pretty good preacher. Everybody's starting to come uh, see me preach. And likewise, if the numbers are down, I'm like, I, I can start to think, man, I'm awful, this church is gonna crash because I can't preach. Do you, do you see the danger either way of looking at that, that it depends on me? I, I've got to tell you, my self-worth in my mind can be driven by the numbers, and that's just sinful. Now, I know the truth. My worth comes from being a child of God, saved by the Son of God. Amen? Amen. Pastors and church leaders, though, forget that the results are God's, not ours. In our story about Jesus feeding this giant crowd, the first thing that Jesus does is he asks his disciples, hey, where are we going to get food for these people to eat? And his disciples say, well, we can't do it. After a lot of thought and contemplation, it's impossible, Jesus. But when Jesus then does it, and we see this incredible miracle, the disciples are clearly made aware of the fact that it was all Jesus. It couldn't have been them. They denied that it could be possible. Now later on, after Jesus' death, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension back up into heaven, his disciples would do incredible miracles, even raising people from the dead. The disciples, the apostles would do that. But check this out. They never forgot that it wasn't them doing the mighty miracles. It was the Spirit of God himself working through them. You see where I'm going? Otherwise, you could start to get this pride thing going, a big head like, wouldn't that be the ultimate topper story? You're at the Christmas party, right? And one the guy says, hey, I did this. Well, I did this. And you go, well, I raised the dead. You know, that, that just automatically goes to the top, no matter how cool the story is that you're going against. Some of the disciples could just say, hey, I raised the dead. Back to life. That's an ultimate story. Now, we've seen this with pastors that have fallen into this trap over the last 20 years. Seems like hundreds of them, of megachurch pastors, don't we? Many times their church was built on a preacher's super abilities to speak, preach, be the super cool guy that draws a crowd, and not to knock big churches at all. Do not hear me say I'm knocking big churches. There are some wonderful, awesome big churches that have grown large because they're doing stuff right. God's working. But what we've seen many times is many larger churches have failed because, look, They drew the crowds, it was not the faithful preaching of the gospel and the full counsel of God's word. What drew the crowds to those churches was not the church family being a true family, but rather this charismatic personality of a pastor that was more entertaining to the people. And when that kind of guy falls, the church falls because it was built on them, not the power of the message of Jesus. May that never be the case at Bentry. You've got a lot of good preachers. If for some reason uh, you lost me. I don't plan on going anywhere by the way. Because on us. Our success is built. If our success is built on ourselves and not on Jesus. It won't last no matter how engaging we are. Why? Because we will die. In Jesus' case, when the, he turns the five far, barley loaves into, and the two fish given by this poor young boy into this enormous feast, twenty to 25,000 people until they're full, there's also a danger in even this success. When the giant crowd realizes this magnitude of the miracle, the power that it took Jesus To pull off this miracle, they decide to make Jesus their king on the spot. This Jewish crowd wanted to make Jesus king by force. You can see where they're going off, but they thought they were right. And you can kind of understand. For one thing, they were Jews. They had literal Hebrew blood running through their veins. And they were descendants of Abraham. They could trace that back. They knew Deuteronomy 18, 18 by heart when God says to Moses, I will raise up for him, them, the Jewish people, a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. It's that promise right there that drove their reaction When the people began to say this in the crowd. John 6, 14. This is indeed the prophet. In fact, underline the prophet in your Bible. This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. The people were looking for the Savior. The prophet. But realize that the people were looking for a military leader. A political power guy a Savior who would end their domination by the Rome, Roman authorities and restore Israel to its greatness. They are not looking for a suffering servant. They're not looking for a baby born in a manger. They're not looking for a guy that would die on a Roman cross that would set them free from their sin. I mean, remember, all the way back, all the way back to... Chapter one of John, seems like two years ago of John, because it was two years ago, of John, when the people start to follow John the Baptist. Do you remember that? The text says, they ask John the Baptist, they go, hey, are you Elijah? He says, I'm not. They say, are you the prophet? He says, no. These people want a prophet, but they want Jesus, they want this prophet for their own political gain. But it wasn't just political gain, it was also driven by money and their stomach. This is how. Here's what I mean. We don't often worry in this country about where our next meal comes from. But even now, most of the world does. If you've been on mission trips with Ventry around the world, you've seen this firsthand. What I'm saying is most of of the world spends most of their waking hours in order working enough to get enough food just to survive that day. In other words, if you don't have to spend 12 hours a day working to get enough food just to eat so you don't starve, you can start to earn money for other stuff. We simply don't get the urgency of this crowd because food meant power. Power. Jesus feeding them in this feast, this bread, that means, it means they possess power as a people, and if they had this power, then they could throw off Roman rule. Plus, on top of that, there was this messianic expectation fueled by the Old Testament passages, patches, passages like this. Psalm 130, or 132, verse 15. God says, I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. This is God speaking about his people. The Messiah they were looking for would give them bread. And now they had it. They put two and two together. Bam. Here's the thing I want us to see. The Jewish people, although they knew the scriptures, they did not know them well. By the way. Just knowing the scripture, even knowing it well, doesn't mean that you are a Christian or that you understand it. They understood that the Messiah was to be a great prophet like Moses. They got that. And they knew that the Messiah would be a great king like David. They got that. But at the same time, this is very important for us. Look at this. The Jewish people understood that the Messiah would be a prophet and a king, but had missed that Jesus would be a priest. Now write this down, because this is important. The Jewish people understood that the Messiah would be a prophet and a king, but what they had missed is that Jesus would be a priest. They had missed that what they had missed is what so many people now miss, that they think that Jesus might be able to help them out. They understand the idea of Jesus being a great prophet, like Moses, someone who could speak for God straight to the people. They understood what a king was. Someone to rule and to keep order and to keep them safe. They get those two things. But what they did not understand or don't understand was this need that they have. And we have. They needed a priest. Just like we need a priest. Now hold on, don't get the wrong idea here. When I say priest, you probably have the wrong idea in your head. So make sure you're with me when I say the word priest. A priest is someone who can represent us to God and then God to us as a mediator. Before Jesus comes in the Old Testament times, the Hebrews had to have priests that would make the offering and sacrifice to God on behalf of the people. And maybe you grew up in a Roman Catholic background. Maybe you have that kind of picture in your head. And the priest was the one who kind of represented God to you. They even looked apart. The they had the little, the little dress on. You could get, do you get what I'm saying? They represented God to you. The role of the priest is to stand between you and God. The priest represents you to God and God to you. They are an intermediary or what the Bible calls a mediator between you and God, a go between. Now, what the Hebrew people didn't understand is that Jesus, coming as the Son of God, as truly a man in his death, in his resurrection, he would become our priests. And not just any kind of priest, but the perfect priest, or the perfect priest over all the world that would replace every priest who were. Only a divine uh, picture of what it would be like. He would bring a sacrifice. His own body, his own flesh, and most importantly, his own blood. Jesus would offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. Those that would believe. Now, we're not going to get there yet, but I want to remind you that at the end of the chapter, we'll get there eventually, Jesus is going to link this sign of feeding this giant crowd with this bread and the fish to him being the bread of life, that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. That's not a great sales line if you're trying to start a new religion eat my flesh, drink my blood. People go, ah. But remember, this is not a made-up religion. This is Jesus pointing to his death, that his body would become the real life that he provides for his people in the wilderness, like a manna from heaven. Sound familiar? I just don't want us to take our eyes off that fact that we'll see at the end of this this chapter. Now, even though Jesus is successful in this sign in feeding them, the danger is that even though successful, the crowd still doesn't want him to be the kind of savior that he's going to be. They want a political savior, but Jesus is a different kind of savior, isn't he? He's going to offer himself as a blood sacrifice, an acceptable offering to God on our behalf that satisfies God's righteous wrath towards the sin in our life. Now listen to this passage from the author of Hebrews. Look to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 24. He says for Christ has entered not into holy pla- uh, not into holy places made with hands, for which we which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. You tracking with him? He says, but as it is, he has appeared once For all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Someone say amen. That's huge stuff. You see the sacrifices that the people had offered to God to cover their sins in the Old Testament did not erase their sin. It didn't pay for people's sin debt to God. Salvation has always been by faith alone in the work of Christ alone, not by the blood of animal sacrifices. The Old Testament saints were saved believing in the promised one of God that would come the Messiah. Obedience to the sacrificial command was a type and a shadow of the work of Christ that would be evident in their faith. Think of this, the blood sacrifices of animals demonstrated the faith that one day a sacrifice would come and pay the ultimate price. You see, the blood of those sacrificial animals in the Old Testament didn't take away sin, but rather looked forward in faith to the work of Christ that would be done on the cross. In the same way, we look back in faith to the cross and Jesus' death for a payment for our sin. The Old Testament saints looked forward to the Messiah's death. The Old Testament sacrifices always pointed to the perfect sacrifice that would have to be made in the future, the one Jesus would provide. Now look again at Hebrews 9, but jump back up to verse 13 for a moment. For if the blood of goats and bulls And the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore he is look the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus' blood was without blemish. Why? Because he never sinned. He was... The once for all sacrifice that John the Baptist had preached when he looked at Jesus and he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is why his sacrifice didn't have to be repeated like the Old Testament animal sacrifices. The ultimate priest that would stand between us and God. And why is that? Because as God, I mean Jesus, as God the Son, could represent God to us because he is truly God. But just as important, Jesus was truly man as well so that Jesus could represent us, man, to God. Are you tracking with me on why Jesus becomes the perfect high priest? These Jewish folks couldn't see that yet. Jesus would bring a one-time permanent sacrifice to God on our behalf for the sins of his people. He would bring peace between us and God. And by canceling out our debt of sin, we owed to God. That's what all of chapter 6 is setting up for us in the last part of the chapter. But we can't get there yet. Just write this down. This is what we just learned. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. He holds all three of those offices as our savior. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. He holds all three offices. Now think about it, because this is a powerful truth, if you'll understand this. Jesus was for sure a prophet. He spoke for God the Father. We've seen that over and over again in our studies. And he is our king, right? And one day he will; his rule will be carried out on earth physically as it is in heaven. But before Jesus would become priest, oh brothers and sisters, he had to die. Jesus tells us his purpose for coming to, to earth as God, as the Son, and taking on the flesh of mankind as that baby born of the virgin. He says this in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew the truth. He knew why he had come, and he knew what he must do, what he was facing. So Jesus doesn't allow this crowd of people in their enthusiasm in the moment to make him king of their physical world right at that moment. He knew he had a path of suffering ahead of him. He must walk that would lead to his death on the cross. We said this a few weeks ago, but it bears it bears repeating here. This is the temptation to Jesus, the same temptation that Satan had offered him in the desert. Do you remember that? To become king of the world without suffering. And yet Jesus didn't bow to the temptation. There's another sermon right here, but if you think about it, that's the temptation that Satan shows us every day in our sin You don't need to follow Jesus. You can have it all right here with no suffering. That we can be the king of our own little lives, that we can truly have all we want if we just follow our heart's desire. Every Disney movie ever made will tell you that. The truth is within you. And you go, no, folks, we're wicked to the core. We're wicked. We know that's false. Why? Because we know that our hearts are wicked and corrupt without Jesus. Satan says, "Do what makes you uh, do what makes you happy. Whatever you desire, you'll find happiness in your desires." Jesus says the exact opposite, and the world hates that. If you lose your life for me, Jesus said, then you'll find it. If you give up your desires then I'll give you true desires. Now, go back to the crowd that wanted to make Jesus their king. They knew the scriptures at least a little bit. They were waiting on a savior. Roman rule was awful. Nobody will argue with that. We get why they wanted out from under Roman occupation, but they had failed to realize that the thing that really enslaved them was not Rome, but sin. Here's the thing I want us to see. The crowd was only willing to support Jesus if he gave them what they wanted. The crowd was only willing to support Jesus if he gave them what they wanted. Heart check time for yourself. Is that you as well? I know it's been me at times in my past. Jesus, if you do this thing for me, I really desire it. This is what I really want. I'll serve you. And yet this kind of sin and selfishness in me has hidden itself in what seems like a godly desire to do a good thing for God. I can remember times in my life when even as a pastor, I would have this kind of prayer, this kind of thought process behind my prayer, I would pray, God, I want to do good stuff for you and lead people to you, but I don't want to get too crazy. I don't want to give it all to you. I I want to keep some control because I've seen what you've done to some other people and their life is rough. But hey, God, let's see what you can do with me giving you this much of my life. And that was talking about my money, my time, my effort, my heart, my future. But it wasn't until I realized from the study of Scripture that through walking that discipleship pathway is that I could only grow so much if I didn't turn over total control. Do you get what I'm saying? Listen, I don't mean to sound like some kind of super Christian. I'm not. I'm not. Because it's still a battle for me. Every day to turn over control of my life. Slowly but surely, through the power of the Holy Spirit working in my life, He has gained more and more control. Can I just say something that might sound strange at first, but but just hear me out. There have been times in my life that I thought I had turned everything over to Jesus and His control, but it wasn't. until I had hit a difficult time in my life that I realized there were still parts of my life I needed to let go of and let God come in and change. I needed to turn them over. What I'm saying is that it is a process. There's still a ton here that we need to cover and we'll keep going on this fourth sign of Jesus feeding this crowd. Don't. Whatever you do, don't miss next Sunday. We're going to talk about some amazing stuff that God has for us. But remember, I said there are two dangers that we face in ministry when we follow Jesus. One is that some people will be outraged that we stand on the truth of Jesus. Just expect that. Jesus says, if you follow with me, just get ready for it. But the second danger is, what if you're successful? Like my dog, what if you catch that car? The answer is this. We must be willing to constantly be willing to say, God, my life is yours. Not my will, but yours be done. I would just tell you that that means that it will cause some major changes in your life if you do that. Where you live, what you do, what you say, how you act. Yes, you'll have peace and joy and love, and you'll start to develop those fruits of the Spirit and become more like Jesus, praise God. But it will also mean that as you see God move more and more and more, and you see that success in ministry, the headwinds of life will start to become much harder. So what do we do? We fix our eyes on Jesus, what he teaches us in Scripture, and we... With the help of the Holy Spirit and our brothers and sisters that we do life with, we walk on. Even though the suffering is great. You see, there's danger even success in ministry. The life is hard. But God's going to do some amazing things if you will sell out completely to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my prayer for our church Bentry is that we would sell out completely that we would give up total control to you as you just continue to pray just let me give you a moment to pray and and talk to the Lord do you need to give up an area of control Is it in the area of a sin that you have just kind of put away that you, you still practice, you just kind of keep hidden? You know, it's just a personal little sin that you have. It's not much. Give him control. Let me step on some toes. These are mine too. Do you spend more time looking on your phone than you do in prayer and reading God's word Hmm. would you give up control is there someone that you have been called to talk to and you feel like you're supposed to talk to maybe they're your family or your children or your parents that dude at work or that girl at the gym maybe you're supposed to share Jesus and you've put it off because you're worried what they will think would you give that up would you say Jesus you have total control and you Christians you just pray right now you know what I mean if you're not a Christian or you're not sure if you're a Christian look up here at me for just a moment to become a Christian, there's two big lies that prevent most people from becoming a Christian. I think those lies come from Satan himself. The first lie is this. I talked to a young man this week. He says, I want to follow Jesus, but you don't know what I've done. I've been so evil in my life. I've, I've done so many evil things. I just don't think Jesus can forgive me. Listen to me. Jesus' blood is enough to cover every sin. Quit wanting Jesus to pay more than he already has. Turn your life over to Jesus. Believe in him. That's what it means to become a Christian. Believe in him. Trust him as your Lord and Savior. Just believe he is the son of God the second big lie that people believe and I think this is the bigger one is they just say I'm good enough I'm a pretty good person if you ask them what what's going to happen when you die what are you going to tell God you go well I, I was a pretty good person I voted Republican voted Democrat I, I, I helped out at the homeless shelter listen to me any good thing that you ever do could never amount to enough to overcome the sin that you're guilty of And I know that's unpopular to say. But the truth is, your sin separates you from God unless you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, your Savior, your Lord. So would you jump past that lie and believe on Jesus as your Savior and your Lord? Either way, pray this. Jesus, I believe you are The son of God, I believe that your death on the cross has paid for my sin. Now listen to me, your sin has been forgiven right now. But not only that, his righteousness, that means his goodness has been put into your account so that when God looks at you from now on, he no longer sees the sins of your past, even the sins you haven't committed yet. He sees the righteousness, the goodness of his son, Jesus. so confess that he is Lord say you are Lord from this day on just pray this God I'm sorry for my sin help me to follow you show me how to follow you God and then when you get ready to die your closing minutes of this life it won't be a terror it'll be a joy Because when you close your eyes in this life, you'll open them in the next life. And see Jesus face to face. God, thank you for this church. May you be glorified in our worship in this Christmas season. May we become all that you have called us to be. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bent Tree Church. To get connected at Bentree and for more information, please visit bentreechurch.com.